Welcome to the Mike Abadir Show. You'll want to sit tight this hour as hosts Mike Abadir and co-host Gino Bacola talk to the experts, celebrities, and figures from the worlds of sports and business of sports. We cover the NFL, baseball, basketball, soccer, and horse racing, so we have all of the bases covered. Now, we just need your participation. Here is your host, Mike Abadir. Hello, everyone. Thursday, June 9th, 2022. This is the Mike Abadir Show, and I, of course, am your host, Mike Abadir. Got an exciting show to bring to you today. We are going to be talking Belmont Stakes, the big race, as well as the uh, card leading up to the big race. We're going to be talking a little bit of NBA Finals, where the Celtics currently hold a 2-1 to advantage over the Golden State Warriors. Curry got maybe a little bit banged up in the last game, but his defense has... Uh, Hasn't been that good in the series so far. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. And then, of course, we're going to talk MLB, the sport that I love, dearest to my heart. Uh, and we're going to be going back to kind of uh, my, my roots, you know, the uh, Northern Cali, the Bay Area. We're going to be talking to the Oakland A's slash San Francisco Giants beat writer, all things Bay Area, really, Melissa Lockhart. She's from The Athletic. We've had her on before. So if you guys listen to the show regularly, you guys know Melissa. She has insights like no other when it comes to the Oakland A's, when it comes to the San Francisco Giants, 49ers, Warriors, you name it. But she's primarily a uh, baseball writer. So love having her on. She'll be with us in about 25 minutes. The first guest that's going to be coming up will be in a few short moments here. We're going to be talking to the Uber capper, Ellis Starr. Uh, he's going to be talking to us about the uh, Belmont Stakes race card. So before we fully uh, dig into this, what are your thoughts about the NBA Finals so far? What do you guys think about my comment, which uh, seems to be somewhat shifting the blame a little bit on, uh, on a not-so-great defensive performance by Steph Curry? But I think we also have to give props to the Boston Celtics and their clamp-down defense they responded really well, right? Because they came out of the gates with an important statement victory in game one. So they made that statement loud and clear. Like, hey, we get it. We're supposedly the young guys. We're supposedly the team that uh, doesn't have the experience. We kind of came out of nowhere. We were average in the middle of the season and then went on a nice streak. But they kind of seized the moment. They're like, hey, that's how young championship championship teams come about, right? You go on a run, things start gelling. You get to the playoffs, and you build a little momentum. Maybe you win a game on the road that you weren't supposed to win. Maybe another game. And then before you know it, you're winning series. And then before you know it, you're in the NBA Finals. And that's pretty much what the young Celtics have been doing against a Warrior team that has all the experience, has the rings, etc. So it's made it a really, really intriguing matchup. You know, old guard versus the new guard. Uh, very compelling. I love it when sports gives us these type of matchups. A little preview of the future and also bring to you, you know, um, the past decade or so worth of uh, championships all in uh, one on one court. So we'll get to that in a little bit, but we're going to get to horse racing, another sport that's near and dear to my heart. And we're going to be talking to a gentleman who has joined the show multiple times before. He's probably one of my favorite handicappers. 
I loved listening to him on uh, Horse Racing Racing Network, HRRN, uh, for, for many years. We'll find out what this guy is up to. Of course, I'm talking about the Uber capper, Ellis Starr. Ellis, what's up, my man? Hey, Mike, thanks for having me on. Everything's really great. We're into summer and uh, great racing around the country now with Belmont and for racing fans, of course, in California, Del Mar starts in about a month and things are going good. You know, I love that you, right out of the gate, you, you come at us with the positives because we know the horse racing community isn't always super positive, right? Uh, you know, the the big talk this week was about the field sizes and, and some disappointment about the Belmont Stakes card overall. What's your assessment of both the card itself and the criticism? Is that warranted? Well, I can only tell you this is the third time this week I've had the conversation. <laughs> and and honestly, it's a legitimate question. But I two things, first of all. One is that the fall crop is, you know, half of what it was 40 years ago. A number of horses being born or less. And it's just, it goes along with the economy. It goes along with people wanting to get into horse ownership and horse breeding. Less horses, less races. It takes a while for the industry to catch up. In terms of the top-level racing... You know, there's a lot of stakes races we call grade one, two, three, uh, anywhere from, you know, a couple hundred thousand to three or four or five, six million dollar races in, in North America. And horses have multiple races in their wheelhouse and then based on what they like to do. So there's multiple races for three-year-old sprinters, multiple races for horses that like to run, you know, a mile and three-eighths, a mile and a half on the grass. And if there's not one, there's one coming up within three to five weeks. This level of horses never run that often. They run four to six times a year at the most, and I expect that it's a little less because of of the of the full crop situation. But there's it's just the way it's always really been, and people just pretend uh, pretend I shouldn't say it doesn't happen that way. I'm in Derby Day. We have lots of big fields. Um, we're going to have McGinn and Saratoga, but you know, a good example is this race, the Belmont. A number of horses that have run okay in the Derby or earlier in the season or were late bloomers or ran in the Preakness are passing this race because a mile and a half, maybe, because they just ran three to five weeks ago, maybe. Also because there's two big races coming up in the summer worth a million bucks or more in the Haskell and the Travers for three-year-olds. So, you know, they pick their spots. I mean, just like when uh, trainers pick the horses path, so to speak. I got a good two-year-old in October. What am I going to do? You lay out the path. I'm going to run this in November. I'm going to let the horse winter off, and then I'm going to bring the horse back and run him twice in the derby. And that's what you're seeing here. I mean, it is a little less, but I I have no concern about it overall. And and, and, and I know I'm, I'm going on a little bit here, but before I let you take over again, um, one thing that's really interesting is betting across North America is up this year over last year, which was the end of the pandemic year, sort of, even though you know we're not completely out of it. But compared to 2019, it's up 10% as our purses. Field size is down a little bit. I think it's 7.5 versus 7.3, and that's not good. Um, but people are betting on the races they want to bet on, and they're watching the others. And that doesn't mean the industry is not healthy, because overall, there's more money being bet in races in North America this year, and last year was a record, of actually the biggest year since, I think, 2009. Um, and and it might exceed or just equal that this year. You know, you, you've said so much that I want to comment on. I'm going to kind of pick and choose here um, because, sure. you know, we only have a, a certain amount of time to work with. But 
you, you bring up some very important points, very interesting points. I'd love to see a uh, the industry, and maybe they have these type of things, but answer the question why. Like, why is there this uptick? Why why are we gaining a ten percent? Uh, you know, year over year or since 2019 versus 2009, et cetera. I remember Gino and I had uh, a little bit of a heated debate. I don't know if it's heated or not, but intense, let's just say. I was of the mindset that there will be a benefit from sports wagering being legalized um, in certain states. And as it grows, there will be an uptick in, in horse racing. He felt completely the opposite of that. My reason for it was this. A lot of sports players... You know, let's just take the college football season. They're maybe making plays on Penn State in the West Coast out here, at least 9 a.m. game, game noon out for you guys. And then they're going all the way until Hawaii uh, at, at 11 p.m. California time or Air Force, et cetera. And where I'm going with this is a lot of times it's like, hey, what's the best wager opportunity out there? And if you've got the app and then you see horse racing, you may be inclined to click on that. And so there is like a spillover effect going in both directions. You know, now maybe a horse player has an app where he could bet on sports. Maybe now he's more likely to play a $10 parlay than if it wasn't legalized. But I'd be interested to see kind of what the reaction is uh, of, of just the industry based on what I just said. Well, I will say that you're, you're right on the money because what happened was in 2020 when the world shut down, racing continued with a few exceptions because horses had to train every day. And most tracks, except maybe Santa Anita, I think, and maybe Canada for a while were closed, but they still were there and they still raced. They managed to do it very safely in most cases. And what happened then was the vacuum got filled. So it's what you're saying in a microcosm and all these sports bettors and all these people that had time on their hands and entertainment and gambling dollars. The only thing available was racing and they migrated to racing. It appears some stayed. I can't prove it. But it appears some stayed. And whatever, you know, right off, I'm moving the needle. You know, racing needs to probably get 2 or 3% new horse racing fans that are a little more than casual every year to be sustainable because, you know, it's most of them were older and they're getting old and retiring and dying off, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but that was a good thing. And that continues to happen with sports betting as well. Probably not as much, but let's just say racing gained 10% of all sports bettors in North America during 2020. Well, if, you know, that's a lot of people. I mean, that's probably more people than bet on racing. And so if it kept two or three of those percent, that's a good explanation. And now if it gets another half percent or so from sports betting or just if those people stay on now that there is sports betting and they have now, they've now been exposed to racing, it's a net benefit. Absolutely. No, you, you, make, uh, you make some valid points there. I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, as a fellow uh, horse, a fan of horse racing, a lover of horse racing, it's kind of been with me uh, for all of my adult life and, and much of my youth just because of my dad and my uncles. And it was just a big thing for them to, you know, get dressed up and, and head to Golden Gate Fields. And uh, I was always dying to go with them until I was finally, I wasn't legally old enough, but I was uh, determined by the dad's that uh, he could he could make a contribution to this uh, handicapping thing, <laughs> and so uh, I've I've been in love with it ever since. So I always am yeah. looking for the bright side of things. I will say the the one thing before we get into these cards, when we're talking about you know maybe some of these smallish field sizes, is this. You know, a lot of people talk about 
spacing out the triple crown races. I, I'm not in favor of that. I'm not in fan of that idea. That's just me personally. But the one thing I do understand that maybe isn't talked about as much is if those cards overall were spaced out a little bit further, you know, we might not get to the issue that we have today because right now you just have so many races at Churchill on the first Saturday of May and then two weeks later at the Preakness and then three weeks later at the Belmont. And like you said, just a short turnaround time and you could have like the stars and stripes called a card if they still call it that for the 4th of July card and uh, the Haskell, like you said, and then we get to Del Mar. There's a lot of options. Like I don't have to enter my grade one horse today because I've got so many options to work with. So in that regard, yeah. that's that's a different benefit than just for the three-year-olds. I'm talking just overall for the sport, but I don't think we're ever going to get that kind of cooperation between tracks because they don't have to. Well, it's not between tracks. It has to do with the stature of the race. I mean, you know, horse racing is a racing industry as much as a breeding industry, and so everybody's trying, uh, at least at the elite level, trying to establish value for their male horse as a sire, because they're worth a lot more than the five, six million they might make in a career over the next 20 years. And they're worth more as a broodmare, because they may drop a foal that's going to sell for three, four million dollars at auction if somebody's willing to buy it on spec. Sure. So to that regard, that's one reason why they pick their spots. And to your point about Derby, you know, Derby and Oak State cars are fantastic, but you had a race for every division, you know, short turf, long turf, three-year-old turf, three-year-old dirt, uh, non-Derby dirt. Uh, Phillies on the dirt, Phillies on the turf, older horses, you know, the whole thing. And so those same races, to some extent, come up on Freakness Day and they come up on Belmont Day because it's the big card philosophy, so to speak, which has been working very well for racing in terms of getting fan interest. has been working well. But you do get the dilution because of it, as you said. Sure, absolutely. Okay, let's get to uh, this Saturday's card. A lot of... uh... It's not very often that we see uh, two mile-and-a-half races on the same card, let alone a mile-and-a-half on turf, mile-and-a-half on dirt. Uh, there's kind of something for everybody here. and You have the Woody Stevens and the Manhattan and the Brooklyn. Where do you want to start with the analysis? We can't go over all of them, but what are maybe where, where, what are the races that you've found some value in? Where do we want to start? Well, honestly, between the various blogs I write, I've covered four of those plus the Belmont. So if we can pick a couple of those plus the Belmont, that's great. I think, you know, here's a great example. <clears throat> You've got a race, which is race seven, which is the Ogden Fip Stakes. And there's already some chatter on Twitter about it's horrible, there's five horses, you know, but then there's, don't forget, for people that understand, I'm sure a lot of your fans, your listeners do, there's pick threes and pick fours. You just switch from making other bets to serial bets, like parlays. There's pick three sure. and pick four, just like parlays, for those who don't know. And so... You know, I'm looking at a race like this in which you've got some phenomenal horses. I mean, the truth is 19 for 25 with 2.9 million. Bonnie South, 11 for 15, first and second. Malathats won 7 of 9, almost 2 million. Clariers won 1.5 million. And Search Results has won just under a million. She's won 5 of 8. And you look at the race, and the morning line, which is the starting odds, is based on the assessment of what the public's going to do. And it's probably correct. It's got. Um, Latruska at six to five and Mallet at five to two and they both come off big wins. Clarier uh, is next at three to one. And then you've got a horse named search results. So I'm gonna actually say there's some value with the nine to two starting odds on search results. Um, she's the only horse in the five horse field chained by trap chained trained by Chad and Brown, 
who usually has two or three, especially in turf races. He's got four in the Manhattan. And here's a filly that's five for eight. She's four and a half for one, and only because you've got Latruska and Malathat and Clarier in the race. You wouldn't get it. She'd be three to five. Um, sure, and, and she's also the only... Uh, last race. Sure, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was going to say she is also the only two-time winner at Belmont. Correct. She's two for two at Belmont as well. And she shows up every time. And this is an example of what trainers do is they plot out what their horse is going to do. So as a three-year-old, you know, she won the Gazelle Stakes, which is in early April. She ran second in the Oaks, beating the neck in the Kentucky Oaks, I should say. She won the grade one acorn, as she said, at uh, Belmont in June. She ran a couple so-so races, third and third. I'm um, sorry, third. And then she took off from August to April to grow up. She's a four-year-old. She's not fully mature yet. She comes back and runs third. And her second race off the layoff, she runs a pip. And she wins by three. She wins easily. Um, she's on the way back up again. She loves Belmont. She loves one turn. This one of the 16th is a one-turn route. And so I think nine to two is value. I, I, I'm not knocking anybody else in the race, but when you think about horses improving through the spring and summer, you think about a horse that's not fully mature. You think about Chad Brown, I read Ortiz Jr., all the things that would normally be really low prices. Now, this isn't a high price because of a big field, which some, some other things happened on this day and every day, but it's a high price because everybody thinks she's the fourth best, and I think she's the best. Wow, she's got the hotter of the Ortiz brothers, hitting at a 31% clip, according to the yep. daily racing form I have here for Saturday. Uh, pretty remarkable, Chad Brown hitting at a 37% clip. That's a good team up right there. If I could say 9-2 to two is value, then that's a, a, a pretty good place to start. Uh, maybe some pick threes, maybe single in the middle. Um, I'm down yep. with, with your strategy. What's next? Absolutely. Actually, you know no, what? Way, Can we take a quick commercial right. timeout? Ellis, can you hang with us for a few more minutes? Sure. Let's take a quick commercial timeout. We're talking to the Uber capper, Ellis Starr. We'll continue with our discussion of Saturday's big Belmont Stakes card. Stay with us, everyone. We will be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, 
current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. This is the Mike Abadir Show. If you want to call in today, we can be reached at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Mike at themikeabadirshow.com. Now, back to this week's program. Back with Ellis Starr, the Uber capper, handicapper extraordinaire. All right, guys, get your pens and papers out because we're going to actually have to zip through this uh, these next five minutes or so. We got to let Ellis go, and we also have to talk uh, baseball with Melissa Lockhart from the Athletic. First, before we get to the Manhattan and the Belmont Stakes, why don't you let the listeners know how they can follow you and where they could find some of your selections? Well, the best thing to do is if you're on Twitter, it's at Uber Capper, just like it sounds, Uber Capper. Um, but also, any, every week you can Google, of course. Every week I do a blog for it's free for one of the ADWs out there called Amwager, which is legal in most states, A-M-W-A-G-E-R.com, and then KeelanSelect.com. So between the two of them and the Echo Base Race of the Week, so between those, there's usually about six races covered on Saturday, and then I also do a daily race of the day for Sanita, a Woodbine, a team in the running, and I'm not sure, but possibly Ellis Park this summer. Very good. Okay, the Manhattan, mile and a quarter on turf, Field of 10, grade one status, of course. Let's get to it. Where, where are we going here? Well, it's a really interesting race, uh, Mike, because it's 10 horses. And as usual, I said, Chad Brown's got four. Um, but you start looking at a couple of the favorites and you go, eh, so-so. I mean, Gufo's three to one. I'm not going to knock him. Um, but he's been first and second this year. He won the grade two Pan American at this mile and a half marathon. Actually, mile and a quarter. He won a mile and a half. It's a mile and a quarter. Um, he was third in this race last year um, after running second in the Man of War. So he's good for a piece. Um, Adamo opens at 4-1. to one, Another Brown uh, got beat ahead in his U.S. debut after coming in from Ireland and ran third with really no excuse uh, in the Turf Classic, which is run on Derby Day. Then he got the Turf Classic winner. Well, let me go to Channel Maker for a Channel Maker. 8-1. He's banked $3.5 million dollars. Um, I wrote on one of the blogs. The problem with Channel Maker is he's not a 10 furlong horse. He loves 11 and 12. He's 0 for 5 at 10 furlongs with one second. And he just, every time they shorten him back up to this distance, it sounds like shorten, right? Just, you know, mile and a half to mile and a quarter, but it's a big difference for him. Um, then you got a horse named Santon, who's a really lightly raced horse owned by Godolphin. He's a four year old. Um, he's done all nothing in his career. He's got three wins and two seconds in six races. The only race he didn't win, he got beat two heads and a neck on the wire. But thinking of, again, horses maturing, this horse is peaking right now. Uh, he ran second in a big race uh, down in the New Orleans on March 26th, and then he won the Turf Classic Invitational, which is a huge race on Derby Day. And he battled his last eighth of a mile head-in-head. Head. He got a real big Echo Bay speed figure of 115, which is just pretty tops. It tops in this field for sure. And he's still got improving to do. Um, I have no doubt about him getting a mile and a quarter. He just won a mile and an eighth. He's bred to get the trip. He's 7-2, so that's a low odds value. But then this other horse I'm really interested in is Lot Imperator on the rail. This is one of Chad Brown's four horses. 
And most of them have the same ownership. They're owned by Maticat Stables or Michael Dove or Wonder Stables, etc. But of the four, this one's 15 to 1. Now, I didn't look at the odds first. I looked at the horse first. I'm saying, wait a second. He's 6 for 12. He comes off a win. Uh, the win was on the Belmont inner turf, which is different than the outside turf. It's the Fort Marcy Stakes. It's grade 2. Grade two. Um, he won wire to wire at 10 to 1. Um, he got a career best equibase figure, 107. But he hasn't come from off the pace. He hasn't won wire to wire before. He mostly comes from off the pace. And you look at Brown's other starters, and there's a horse named Tribuvan. And you look at Tribuvan, you'll see he's been first in almost every one of his last seven races, every single time. And he's a good horse. He's won 700,000. But I would bet dollars to donuts that Tribuvan is in this race to keep the pace honest because a horse like Channelmaker could get out there on easy lead and steal the race. Uh, there's another one that might, Highland Chief, who just won the Man of War, could get out there. I think Tribuvan's in there to ensure an honest pace and set it up for any of Chad's closers. And there's no reason Lon Piratore can't be that horse because he just won on the inner turf. He's improving. Um, I just think he's got, and he won the grade two of Bernard Brook last year at uh, uh, Saratoga. So he's 15 to 1. So I'm just so you know my play in the race. I'm going to bet Santin to win at 2 to 1 or more. I'm going to bet Long Period Award 4 to 1 or more. I'm going to bet them both. And then I'm going to play a bunch of exactos and trifectas, King the two on top of a bunch of horses with a bunch of horses in third. Outstanding. For those who are writing it down, that's race 10, the Manhattan. Uh, let's get to the big one, race 11. We're kind of up against the clock here. Uh, Ellis, maybe can okay. you give us like your trifecta box? Three horses or four yeah, horses. This is, be re- this is actually going to be real simple. I'm trifecta king, we the people. He's got controlling speed in the rail. He's a two-to-one favorite. Not a ton of value in betting him to win. Don't like Modonigal. I don't like horses to come from way back. That's why I don't like Rich Strike in the Belmont. They just seem to make big moves and kind of just peter out. Um, and so I'm going against him. I'm going to say we the people on top with Creative Minister and Nest, the Philly in second. The horses that are going to be second to we the people, second and third in the early stages, are the horses that are more likely to be second and third at the finish. So it's going to be, again, we the people over Creative Minister and Nest and Exactas, and then maybe all in the trifecta, and then maybe we the people over all over Nest and Creative Minister in the trifecta. But the key to the race is getting Nest and Creative Minister, who are 6-1 to one and 8-1 to one morning line, uh, second to we the people behind Rich Strike, who's seven to two, and Mo Donald, who's five to two. I don't really like a bit to finish second. I think they might finish third, but that's about it. Awesome, Ellis. Thank you so much. Sorry to uh, have to rush things here. We maybe spent a little bit too much time on the conversation about the state of horse racing, but we'll have you come <laughs> back on uh, throughout the summer because there's going to be a lot of awesome opportunities. Thank you so much, Ellis. Uh, well, uh, Listeners out there, thank check you, him Michael. out. Welcome He's the opportunity. Great handicapper. Thank you, Ellis. Bye. Thanks. Okay. Take care, bud. All right, moving right along. Uh, We are a little bit tight on the schedule here, a little bit behind on the schedule, I should say. So apologies to our next guest for keeping her holding. She's come on the show many times over the last several years. For all of you out there who are not subscribed to The Athletic, you should be subscribed to The Athletic so that you could check out her work and the work of many other talented writers that are out there. Of course, we're talking about Melissa Lockhart. She covers... A's and Giants and Bay Area sports in general and and life and everything in between. Melissa, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. We love having you on the show with us. And uh, before we get to a piece that you wrote about a a kind of an intriguing prospect that the A's just called up, A's are kind of in the middle of a a tough stretch here. Before they hit the road, they (laughs) had a 1-10 homestand. Uh, Not very good. Uh, Of course, 
ran into the world champion Braves not so hot. They'd gotten off the year on a decent start, I would say, but now I think the talent shortage is kind of showing itself. What are your thoughts in general, just over the first 60? Yeah, I mean, I I think you summed it up pretty well. You know, it was a team that was maybe playing above its head for the first three weeks of the season and, uh, you know, a few injuries and guys coming back to earth a little bit. And, you know, you sort of see where the rebuilding project really was. Obviously, it's still a pretty good starting staff, all things considered, Um, you know, as long as they still have Frankie Montas, um, you know, and they've they've got Cole Irvin and there's there's guys that can – get you to compete as a starter each game. So they've actually been in pretty competitive games most of the time. And the bullpen, you know, is young. So they've, they've put together some impressive stretches and some not so impressive stretches lately. Uh, but the offense has just really been um, pretty disappointing. I think even the veteran players, for the most part, uh, you know, have not performed to the level of what you would have hoped to see. A, a lot more uh, ground balls. I mean, it's not like they're swinging and missing a whole lot. In fact, I think that's actually improved over last year. Um, but just a lot more ground balls, two people or fly balls right at guys um, than you would have saw um, hope last year and just not nearly enough over the fence power to kind of make up for that. So we'll see. I mean, you know, it's, it, this was always a transition year. I don't think anyone expected them to be good, whether they can get under a hundred losses or not. I think it's probably the biggest question, but I, I would expect once the trade deadline comes and some of the other veterans are gone, you're going to see a very, very young team for the rest of the year. Yeah, uh, you make some really good points, especially about the offense. I mean, it's tough when your leading home run hitters have uh, five home runs uh, a piece. Uh, your on-base percentage leader is Tony Kemp at three twelve. Uh, n- not not a lot of optimism with with respect to the offense. But one area that I'm actually pretty impressed with over the last few days is uh, Ramon Lariano. He plays a stellar defense and. I think if he's healthy, he he could be a guy that can kind of lift the team a little bit. What are your thoughts about Ramon's performance so far? Yeah, I mean, when he's healthy and, and on, I think, you know, he's one of the more dynamic players in the American League. He can hit for power. He's got speed. He's a good defender. Uh, you know, I think, obviously, coming off his suspension and then having spring training, but then having to basically train on his own while he was serving the rest of his suspension, and taking him a little while to get going again. But I think you are starting to see a little bit more of the regular Ramon. So, um, you know, they moved him to right field, which I think is a good move because he tends to throw his body around a lot uh, in center field. And maybe he can stay a little bit healthier playing out there. Um, and, you know, he's a guy they'll have an interesting decision to make if he is hitting well and playing well by the trade deadline. You know, he could be another guy that could fetch them quite a lot at the deadline, but he's also a guy that's not, you know, right at free agency or anything. So they certainly could keep him for a little bit longer. So he'll, he'll be a guy to kind of keep an eye on for the next few months. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and on the pitching side, you've mentioned uh, Montas, of course, and, uh, Paul Blackburn has been a real nice, uh, pleasant surprise. I mean, he's kind of pitching at an all-star level. The H team has to have an all-star. This this could be the one, Paul Blackburn. Yeah, I think I saw earlier this week he's third in war for pitchers uh, in the American League or something like that. You know, he's been really, the, you know, the last two starts have been not quite as good as he had been up until that point, but he's throwing strikes. He's getting a lot of swings and misses when he is giving up contact. Most of it has been on the ground um, and easily handled. Uh, And he's just such a fierce competitor that when his stuff is working, you know, he's going to go up there um, and really challenge guys and work pretty quickly through 
an order. So um, he's turned into a really great surprise, and he made a lot of adjustments, uh, you know, after he was designated for assignment a couple of seasons ago uh, and came back a little bit fitter, uh, throwing a little bit harder, and added a little bit more to his breaking pitches. And, and just those slight adjustments have made a huge difference. So I think he's got a very strong chance to be the A's uh, all-star candidate at this point. Yeah, no doubt about that. So let's talk about your piece really fast. You were talking, uh, you were writing about a prospect that just got called up, actually had his first outing yesterday, uh, Jared Koenig. Tell us a little bit about his journey to the bigs and, uh, and why it's interesting. Yeah, you know, it, it is. And it was funny, I, I, in, in doing the first piece I did on him, which was a feature uh, about 10 days ago, I, I discovered it's actually Koenig. He won't correct you if you say Koenig. And, and, okay, um, I'm so used to the coffee maker, right? I'm calling him the long name. But it's, <laughs> he's not the coffee guy. Koenig, but, um, yeah, but anyway, he, you know, he's a, he's a really interesting guy. He was drafted in 2014 by the White Sox, but they didn't sign him because they ended up spending so much on Carlos Rodon that they ended up not signing a lot of their late-round picks. Uh, went to Cal State Monterey, then didn't get drafted and spent four seasons in, in like five different independent leagues. Uh, never got picked up, went over to Australia and played in the, uh, for the Auckland team in New Zealand in the Australian uh, Baseball League and got noticed there by an A scout and signed right before the pandemic started in 2020. Obviously had to spend that year, you know, not pitching, but uh, came back in 2021 and, um, you know, pitched well enough to get placed into double A in its first affiliated season, which is pretty remarkable, really, to go from never pitching an affiliated ball to being in double A right away. Uh, won the league's pitcher of the year award last season, jumped up to triple A and was even better this year in the PCL, which is really hard to believe. And, um, got his call up. So, I mean, you know, this is, it's a really great story, you know, just as a, like a human interest story, because here's a guy that, it just had to really work to get noticed and went to almost the ends of the earth really to get that notice. Um, but he's also just a really interesting pitcher because I think he's sort of a throwback to the, what, you know, I grew up watching pitchers that sort of, and rather than having these very dramatic um, hard fastballs or, you know, big breaking, big, big breaking bending pitches, they did a lot to change speeds and keep hitters off balance by throwing the same pitch, but four or five different speeds. Um, and he does that masterfully, especially with his fastball. He was up to 94 at his max with his fastball yesterday, but was also through it at 85 and a lot everywhere in between. Um, has a good curveball um, and a, a good cut fastball to go along with that. Is a big guy that, you know, kind of hides the ball well from the left side. So, you know, he's, he's not somebody who you're going to see a lot of pitching ninja, you know, gifts on or whatever, because he's not going to have the real uh, sexy spin rates or anything like that. But, um, he really knows how to pitch. And I think, uh, you know, every time he's been in a league, uh, after the first time he faces hitters in that league, he gets better because he has an understanding of what they're looking for the next time. So uh, I'm really excited to see how it develops with him. But um, just a great accomplishment to even get to this point for him. Yeah, the way you're talking about him, it kind of gives me a, a uh, an impression of maybe a little bit lighter, of course, on the uh, weight scale, but uh of like a, a Kershaw or a Mad Bum, but with the pitching style of like a Jimmy Key. Is that a fair comp? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. He, he does have a little bit of a kind of a Kershaw-y look to his delivery, you know, in that, that kind of curls behind the back and hides mm-hmm. it well. Um, and and he is, he's, he's like 6'3", you know, 215, 220. Um, so, you know, he's, he's got that big body. And um, and then, yeah, I, I would say he's, he's got more fastball than Jimmy Key ever did, but certainly has that sort of feel, right, where you're like, 
you know, the guy's going to be looking at for 94 and he might throw it in the exact spot the guy's looking for, but it's 84 and all of a sudden he's way, you know, way out in front on it. And so um, I think that's what's really interesting. And I've been noticing, uh, you know, this year you talked about Paul Blackburn too. There's just sort of been a return, I think, a little bit to the sort of more cat and mouse cerebral uh, aspects of pitching um, that maybe we had gotten away from the last few years when it was so kind of brute force with uh, all these high spin rates and the, and the high velocity fastballs. And not to say that velocity is going anywhere. It certainly isn't, but um, I, I'm, I'm liking that more of these pitchers, Cole Irvin's another one with the A's that, that does it, that kind of play the cat and mouse game and play it really well. And so even if their stuff is average, it plays up because of their ability to um, to change speeds and, and outsmart a lot of the hitters. So um, it, it's fun. It makes the game a lot more interesting to follow, too. I, I love it. You need to have that balance of, of Randy Johnson's as well as Greg Maddox types, you know. Um, that's Absolutely. what makes the game beautiful. There's so many different pitching styles that are out there. And uh, I agree with you about the uh, cat and mouse cerebral part of things. Absolutely Love that aspect of the game. Some of the the nuances that, you know, maybe baseball junkies like us kind of, uh, you know, get off on because it's just uh, it's it's a beautiful game. And um, when when I when I see stories like this, a call up like this, I just I try to put myself in that person's shoes. I, I would have to imagine after four years of indie ball. I probably would have come to the conclusion, I'm not making the bigs. I just love baseball. Uh, and then you, you go to Australia, you're like, I'm definitely not going there to get noticed by major league scouts. It's amazing, amazing story. Amazing story. Uh, ha- impossible not to root for somebody like this. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I had asked him, I said, you know, was there a kind of a time limit for when you were going to decide this was not something you could keep pursuing? And And he said, you know, yeah, that like, Coming into that 2019 season, he sort of thought, well, this is probably the end of the road, but he pitched really well. And I think it was the Frontier League uh, that season. And that was where he had a teammate who was being recruited by the team he eventually signed with because that teammate signed with a different Australian team. And he thought, well, I've never left the United States. I'm going to give this a shot and see where it goes. Um, but he felt like he couldn't retire when he was pitching well, you know, that that was something that. He didn't want to leave it off on that note, and um, it ended up turning into a, a whole new career. So it's pretty cool. He's a, he's a semi-local kid. He's from Aptos, which is uh, you know near Santa Cruz, which is not that far from the Bay Area. So uh, it, it's just a, a wonderful story. And to think that it took like 7,000 miles or whatever it was <laughs> between uh, California and, 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 and Australia and New Zealand for the ace to find him is pretty funny, but um, it, it, it's a, definitely a great story. He could, couldn't script that. That's, a, that's just an amazing story. Okay, before we let you go here, maybe just a quick word or two on the San Francisco Giants. They're kind of hitting some road bumps right now. I believe Colorado just finished up a game taking uh, two out of three um, at home for the Giants. Uh, you know what's interesting to me, Melissa? I was doing some sorting on the stats, and you know, in my mind, I was like, you know, they they need to get some sticks, they need to score some runs. But then when I when I sorted runs scored, they are hot. They have more runs scored than the Boston Red Sox, who lead the American League in runs scored. So if they are in the AL, they would be the leaders. And they're right behind the Mets and the Dodgers. So they have the third most runs scored in, in baseball. I was shocked. How, how do you even explain that? Yeah, I, you know, I think it, it, partially they've had some series where they've really hit the ball well, and then they've, you know, had some series where they haven't. So I think you're seeing um, 
you know, one of those things where they run into some losses where they've, uh, where the offense has failed and you kind of notice that more, you know? Sure. Um, but I think in general, the big issue has really been um, that they haven't, their defense hasn't given them much help with the pitching staff. And so the pitching staff is, you know, doing what they did so well last year, which was not allow home runs and keep the ball in play and give their defense a chance to make the play. And they're really not making those plays. And so, and a lot of these close games, when it's coming down to, um, you know, needing to keep the, the the opposing team off the board for a couple of runs late in the game, um, you know, they're not really able to make those crisp plays that they were able to do on a Tyler Rogers ground ball, you know, last year or, um, you know, save a, in the gap ball, fly ball, you know, that the ball gives up or something like that. Um, and uh, you know, it's not. It's, they, obviously, there's a few new guys, but mostly it's, it's it's a similar group of guys. I guess they're just older, you know, and and that aging can kind of catch up to you in different ways. It could just be a slump, but fielding doesn't tend to slump. Um, so there may need to be some adjustments there in terms of how they're approaching their defense because uh, their margin of error is relatively thin, and it was relatively thin last year too. But they were so good at every fundamental um, that I think. It, it made it that they were able to kind of completely capitalize on all their strengths. And this year with the fundamentals being slightly less so, um, they haven't been able to capitalize as much. Uh, you know, they've also, it, the injuries have been something they've had to deal with. And with an older team, that's not surprising. Um, but, you know, getting Brandon Belt back and healthy, having Brandon Crawford healthy again, you know, all those types of things should help them, but um, it's not like they're having a bad season. They're certainly having a good one. It's just hard to compete with 107 wins, I think. Absolutely, no doubt about that. And I think if they get their fielding squared away, their their hitting looks like they're able to score runs in bunches at times. But as long as you got Logan Webb and Carlos Radon and uh, Alex Wood, and even the surprise of uh, Jacob Junis, as well as a closer that I love in uh, Camilo Duvall, not many people around the country probably know about him yet, but he's I think he's here to stay. I like this kid. But uh, I think the Giants still have a lot to be optimistic about. I think they could definitely be a playoff team. Melissa, we yeah. got to let you go. You're on the run. We have a commercial break really quickly. How can our fo- uh, listeners follow you along on social media and uh, your articles? Yeah, uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Melissa Lockard and um, just find me at The Athletic. You can search for me in the author's field. Well worth it. Doesn't disappoint. Melissa, as always, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We'll check in with you, hopefully with uh, brighter times ahead for the Oakland days. <laughs> Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. That is Melissa Lockhart of The Athletic. We are a little bit late on the commercial break, so we'll take our final time out, and we'll come back on the other side, talk a little NBA, button up the baseball talk as well. Stay with us, everyone. We will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
Sports continues to grow and evolve to ever-increasing prominence in today's society. On All Around Sports, host John Inglesby will connect with the leading newsmakers from the sports world, including players, owners, and fellow sports journalists discussing the top news and events that are relevant to sports today. John will also report from and offer his experience of the world's top sports events. Tune into All Around Sports with John Inglesby, Mondays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. This is the Mike Abadir Show. If you want to call in today, we can be reached at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Mike at themikeabadirshow.com. Now, back to this week's program. I have to add a little context to what Melissa was just talking about. The Giants in this game today against the Rockies, they made four errors. Four errors. Two of them by a player that I really like a lot, especially offensively, in Tyro Estrada. He's not a guy that many people uh, talk about or know about. He's relatively uh, young and new. And he kind of does it all with the stick. But uh, that was not the best display of gloveship, if that's a word. Um, <laughs> uh, not a lot of good work with his glove there uh, today in a very sloppy loss to the Colorado Rockies. You know, a team that you should always beat outside of Coors Field. You know, you should be winning series against them outside of Coors Field. Uh, but they've been uh, they've been tough on the Giants. Uh, that's that's for darn sure. Um, it, it's interesting because, as always in the NL West, for whatever reason, the uh, Giants went to Coors Field and they won their first three over there, right? And of course, the Giants. Uh, host the Rockies, and then the Rockies take two out of three over here. So it's it's always backwards, isn't it? <laughs> so to add a little more additional context to what I was talking about with Melissa regarding the Giants' offense, I mean, did you guys know that they would have the most runs in the American League over the Boston Red Sox? Are you kidding me? Over the Yankees? The Angels, who have been bashing, although losing in uh, disastrous numbers, especially when it comes to their uh, World Series champion manager, Joe Madden. He was a scapegoat in that scenario, which is interesting to me because, and I wish I had more time to ask Melissa about that since she does cover uh, the AL West. Here's a guy, obviously he has not forgotten how to manage. And the first 25% of the season mark, you know, people were talking about him maybe being manager of the year. The Angels were like 10 games above 500 and playing really good ball. 
And they were doing it without necessarily Otani having to carry the team. Or even Trout, who's who's been banged up a little bit this year. Uh, and even Rendon, who has been banged up, like it seems he always is. Which tells me that they've got a good collection of players. But then all of a sudden, they just hit a wall. And I know injuries play a part of that as well. But anytime you're in the midst of a streak of losing, what is it now, 14 in a row? 13, 14. I think they're at 14. I, I would have held on to Madden a bit longer because I'm always looking at it as, well, what's my alternative? It doesn't make sense that his message all of a sudden start, stopped resonating. Well, did you think it stopped resonating when they're 27 and 17? So just all of a sudden, in a two-week period, it stopped resonating, and that's it? Yeah, 14 in a row. So they were 27 and 17, and now they are 27 and 31. So in a two-week time period... Jobs were lost. And like I said, two weeks ago, we were talking about one of the better records in the American League. So I'd love to hear more about that situation. I know Joe Madden himself said that he was very surprised at the firing, um, probably because of what I'm talking about. You know, they came out of the gate playing pretty good ball. And even on the season right now, the season's not lost by any stretch of the imagination. They're second in the American League West. Uh, they're a little bit of below 500 now. Um, the, but they still have a positive run differential on the season. They still got Trout and Otani and on and on and on. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe uh, Rob Thompson, who is taking over for Joe Madden, maybe he's got a, a spark or two underneath him to, uh, to light a fire. Excuse me. I think that's the Phillies guy that took over for for Girardi. I'll find out. I'll find out if I'm confusing the two, but that's the next situation I was going to talk about is since Girardi got fired, the Phillies have won seven in a row. How about that? Now, Girardi's a guy, he knows everything about baseball inside and out. He's a champion player, champion manager. Uh, but again, you have to have a scapegoat. Interesting to me, because I think that the Angels roster top to bottom is better than the Phillies roster top to bottom because not only can the Phillies not field, but I don't think that they have a very good uh, pitching staff overall, middle relief staff overall. So, you know, to me, they were kind of built on all offense. Um, so I, I, I definitely can't say that Joe Girardi had big role in their poor start for the season, their inconsistent start to the season. But of course I don't own the team. I'm not the general manager of the team. You know, everybody evaluates things in their own regard. Um, yeah. I mean, that's pretty much the gist of it when we're talking about some of these mid-year firings. Uh, and yes, I, I just looked it up. It is Rob Thompson. That is the manager now for the Phillies. So I was correct in saying that uh, Rob Thompson has won seven in a row. Um, I will look to see who the new manager is, the interim tag for the Angels. But uh, nonetheless, um, you know, I think the first couple so far since Madden was let go have, have been losses. And maybe the Angels were looking to replicate what 
the Phillies are doing where they get a spark. I think a lot of times what happens is you're trying to shock the conscience of the players. So when they arrive and they're told that their manager has been fired, especially somebody with the resume and credentials of a Joe Madden or a Joe Girardi, the thought is, you know what, the players are going to really, really um, put the clamps down and pitch a little bit better, hit a little bit better, play more fundamental baseball. And I think we are seeing that from the Phillies. Um, not yet with the Angels, so time will tell about that. A uh, couple of quick words about the NBA Finals. As I said last week when we had Pop DiBiase on with us, handicapping the series, he predicted the Celtics would be the winners, but we both felt that it was going to be a great series. I think we're seeing that. We're seeing back and forth heavyweight championship fight we're seeing two teams that are the best teams in in basketball in my opinion they got the best two they got it right doesn't always happen like that when you're talking about championships in pro sports but i think this year they got it right and uh the celtics hold a two to one advantage thus far in this series I do think that the Celtics are going to win. Would not at all be surprised if the Warriors came back at one. They have the heart of a champion. They can come back. They can win with a lead. They can come back from behind. They could do it all. I just think that the Celtics have a little bit more of a shutdown defense, and they also have playmakers on offense who could seal the deal with game-winning shots when the pressure is on the line. So I think we're going to see some some heroes that come about from this championship series uh, heroes in the same likes that we've got Steph Curry, you know, uh, and uh, Clay, etc. Guys that you know are amongst all-time lists when you're talking about the story of the uh, history of the NBA. Um, I think we're going to find that a couple of new ones are going to come from Boston lore, you know, uh, that to go up there with the the Bill Russells and the Larry Birds and the McHales, etc. And that's what we have to do in basketball: is win championships, probably more than any other sport to be considered an all-time great. And it makes sense because you only have five on the court. And so the pressure is on each individual that's out there more than any other sport because you got the least number of guys out there. So by this time next week, we should have a champion crowned. We'll look forward to uh, the NBA offseason after that. A lot of free agents, very intriguing offseason coming up for the NBA. Unfortunately, as always, this is, the last few seconds of the show here, we're up against it. So I got to let you guys all go. Thank you so much for listening. Go Belmont Stakes. Go, when I say go, go play, go enjoy, go love it. Horse racing needs it. Horse racing loves their wagerers and their fans. We'll see you same time, same place next weekend, folks. Enjoy your sports weekend, everyone. Thanks for joining us this week for the Mike Abadir Show. Please tune in again next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time for another show with Mike and his co-host, Gino Bacola, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a great week.